Well, there is a lot, lot, lot going on at Harmony today. Uh, in addition to our normal ministries, we have uh, at our various campuses parent-child dedications, and we've got baptisms, and then of course tonight uh, at our Danville campus, five o'clock, we have our annual meeting. And so this is uh, a time, just want to really encourage everybody to come out because it's a time where we're going to look back at the last year, and we're going to celebrate all that God has done in and through our church, and then we're going to look forward. Forward, and we're going to preview uh, hopefully what he's going to do in the days ahead. So it's a review and it's a preview. And uh, we just want to encourage whether you're a member or an attender uh, to come out and to join us. We're one church, uh, multiple locations, but, but we're going to come all together. It's going to be a great evening of celebration. In fact, this is really a, a whole day of celebration, all right, as we celebrate people following uh, the Lord and believers' baptism. We celebrate parents dedicating uh, to, to lead their children to Jesus. And we just have... Don't we have so much to be thankful for? Don't we? And... And so, uh, you know, I uh, am so thankful uh, to be a part of, the, of a church uh, where God is working and there's life. And so I just want to give you another opportunity here this morning. If you're thankful for that too, why don't we celebrate and show him some appreciation this morning? Can we do that? All right. You need to get warmed up because we're going to do that again, all right? So, uh, today in the big story, we have a big task at hand. Uh, This morning, we're going to look at Acts chapter 2, which tells the electrifying story of the birth of the church. Now, here's the challenge in this. Acts 2 consists of 47 verses, all of which are important to the story. So, anytime you have more verses to cover than minutes to cover them in, you've got quite a challenge, uh, let alone uh, when those verses come from one of the most important chapters in the Bible. Uh, On top of that, uh, there are a couple of issues in Acts chapter 2 that could easily sidetrack us if we allow them to. A couple of controversial issues, and and we'll we'll address those, but let's work really hard today at focusing on on the main things we we need to focus on in Acts chapter 2 and and not get distracted or or sidetracked on those relatively minor issues. Issues, all right, so I'm going to work hard to try to keep us focused. Uh, I need you to work hard along with me, and if we do so, I think we're going to have a very meaningful and beneficial time. All right, so, so you with me here? Are we ready to work hard today? Uh, listen, there's no outline this morning, all right? I, I don't have three points or four points. I'm just going to walk you through the text, and we're going to see what the Word of God has to say to us uh, uh, today. Now, uh, it, it, with that in mind, why don't you go ahead and turn with me uh, to Acts chapter 2. And, and since, you know, uh, you should be there already. I've only mentioned it like five times, but if you're not in Acts chapter 2, get there really quick, and it's on page 713 in our auditorium Bibles. While you're finding your way there, let me uh, do a review of what we talked about last week from Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, all right, right before Jesus ascends back to heaven, he tells his disciples that in just a few days, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon them, and when he does, they are going to be his witnesses every Everywhere and to everyone. That's Acts chapter 1. And now as we turn the page to Acts chapter 2, we see that Jesus' words are fulfilled. Look at what verse 1 says. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit 
and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now let me give you a quick timeline of events here. Jesus was crucified at Passover. There are 50 days between Passover and the day of Pentecost. In fact, the word Pentecost means 50th, all right? So we got 50 days between these two events. Acts chapter 1 tells us that Jesus spent 40 days after his resurrection appearing to the disciples and preparing them for his departure. This means that uh, the disciples have about 7 or 10 days between the time Jesus goes back to heaven and the day of Pentecost. Now, now one other thing about the day of Pentecost, uh, it was the day where Jews from all around the world came to Jerusalem to celebrate. What, are known, what is known as the, the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of the Harvest. So they're, they're celebrating, they're thanking God uh, for the harvest. So you've got Jews from all over the world coming in for this event. And it's on this day as the disciples are gathered in a room, 120 of them. And they're probably gathered in a room that, that's right next to the temple. They're all, all gathered together. They're praying. And as they are praying, something big happens. In fact, you know, big really isn't a su- uh, sufficient adjective. It's more like huge or massive. Something massive happens. As the disciples are praying, all of a sudden they hear something, they see something, they experience something, and as a result, they speak something. They hear, the text says, a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Now, now note, it's actually not a wind. It's, it's like a wind. Uh, it sounds like a, a, t- a tornado or a hurricane. Gale force winds. That's the sound that they hear. Now, the wind here is meant to symbolize that the Holy Spirit has arrived. In both Hebrew and Greek, uh, there's only one word for spirit and wind. It's the, the same word. And so, when the disciples hear this, their minds are, are going to be brought back to the Old Testament where uh, many times when the Holy Spirit shows up, he does so to bring about a new creation. So, so they probably would have thought of Genesis 1-2, where we're told that at the beginning of creation, the Spirit hovered over the waters. Or they may have thought about Ezekiel 37. Now, if you're not familiar with Ezekiel 37, I really encourage you to, to read it sometime because it gives probably the most dramatic prophecy uh, in the entire Old Testament. God tells Ezekiel to speak to the valley of dry bones. And as he speaks to the valley of dry bones, the Spirit breathes, the wind of the Spirit comes, and those dry bones are given new life. Disciples, of course, though, may have also been thinking of John chapter 3. You may remember a few months ago, we we studied John chapter 3, where Jesus is talking to a man by the name of Nicodemus. And he tells Nicodemus that if he wants to see the kingdom of God, he has to be what? He has to be born again. And how is someone born again? They're born by the Holy Spirit. And what is the Holy Spirit like? The Holy Spirit is like the wind. You can't see the wind. You can only see the effects of the wind. And that is the same way it is with the Spirit. And so here by Spirit, what we're meant to see and we're meant to picture that the Holy Spirit has come and he has come to bring new life. He has come to give a new beginning. So the disciples hear the sound, but they also see tongues as of fire. Now again, fire is a symbol, and it's a symbol of God's presence. In the Old Testament, God would often appear to his people 
uh, in the form of fire. Think of Moses at the burning bush, or think of the pillar of fire that led the Israelites through the wilderness. So, so the, the fire symbolizes God's presence. God's presence has come. Now, there's a difference between God's presence in the Old Testament and God's presence here in Acts chapter 2. You see, in, in the Old Testament, while God was present with his people, there was always a separation between God and his people. Whether it was a, a, a separation of distance or a separation of a, of a veil, there, there was always that thing that w- was keeping them apart. However, you will note here, and this is a wonderful truth, we don't have time to really dig into it, but what we see here is that the Holy Spirit, God's presence doesn't just come to them, it comes upon them. It comes into them. So now what we're seeing is the Holy Spirit, God's presence is coming to reside in believers. So we have a a new presence, okay? We have a new creation, and then this leads to a new experience. Disciples are now filled with the Holy Spirit. The word filled means control. The Holy Spirit comes in and takes control of their lives. Now, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come, but when he he came, he would come temporarily onto someone to to empower them. But now here, the uh, the Holy Spirit is coming in and filling and controlling the disciples' lives. And as a result, this leads them to speak something. So so they, they hear, they see, they experience, and then the end result is they speak. And what do they speak? Well, Luke says that they speak in other tongues. Now, let's talk about speaking in tongues, shall we? (laughs) Let's talk about it. I want to point out here, it's really important to note that by tongues, Luke is referring to spoken languages. The disciples here are not speaking ecstatically. They're not speaking a heavenly language. They are speaking known languages of their day. Now, they didn't know them, but the people that they are speaking to come from all different parts of the world, all right, where they speak their own languages, and those people are hearing the disciples speak in their languages. So so, so we know that these are spoken languages because, one— Other people understand what they are saying, all right? Second, we know they are spoken languages because verse 11 says that there is a specific content to their speech. They are speaking the mighty works of God. In other words, the content of their message is the saving works of God in the Old Testament, how he has freed the Israelites from slavery and brought them safely into the promised land. Now, um, I want to make, make just somewhat of a side note here. I, I don't want to get uh, distracted or sidetracked, but I do want to emphasize that the focus here in Acts chapter 2 isn't on speaking in tongues, but rather on the proclamation of the gospel. All right? In other words, whether we believe the gift of tongues was temporary or permanent, one thing we can agree on is that it's not a self-focused gift. Rather, it's an others-focused, gospel-spreading gift. So I could say this, um, at Harmony Bible Church, there are those who believe that the gifts of tongues have ceased, that they are no longer uh, available, that when the, Old Test- or when the New Testament was completed, those tongues, they, they went away. There are others who believe that they are still available, and they are still a gift that the Holy Spirit is empowering using uh, today. Now, I'm not going to make an official statement 
statement from me or the church on this. I am going to say this, however, regardless of what our position is on that, we, we have to understand that the gift of tongues is a gift given for others so that they might be able to hear the gospel. And to see the gift of tongues in any other way is to see it erroneously. If it's about us, then we're, we're, you're using it improperly and we're not seeing it biblically. It's about spreading the gospel. Now, Enough on that. I know I've not made anybody happy probably with that. All right. We'll address it at some other uh, time uh, more fully. But before we move on to the story, let me recap uh, for you verses 1 through 4. In these verses, we see that the Holy Spirit does four things. He creates, he indwells, he controls, and he empowers. He creates new spiritual life. He indwells believers. He controls their lives, and he empowers them for ministry. Verses 1 through 4 give us a great summary of the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's get back to the story, and uh, as we do so, we're going to pick up the pace a little bit. When the disciples start speaking in tongues, verses 5 through 13 tells us that some of the people that they are speaking to are amazed, and some of the people are amused. Some of them want to know what all of this means, and some of them want to ridicule. Uh, Luke tells us that some of the people said, hey, uh, the disciples, they're just drunk, okay? They're just filled with new wine. They're not filled with the Holy Spirit. They're filled with new wine. And so, in the midst of the ensuing chaos, Peter stands up and he preaches the first sermon in the history of the church. Now, I just want to point out to you how ironic it is that Peter is the one speaking the first message, giving the first sermon in the history of the church, because like seven weeks earlier, okay, he had been running scared from a, from a, a servant girl, right? He didn't want to speak at all about Jesus, and now he's bold. What makes the difference, by the way? It's not him, it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit emboldens him, emboldens him, and he gets up and he preaches a powerful sermon. Now, this sermon is found in verses 14 through 36, and since we don't have time to look at it all, let me summarize the main points. Peter has just two of them. Number one, he says the disciples aren't drunk with wine, but rather with the Holy Spirit. When I want to say drunk here, uh, I told you earlier that the word filled means controlled. So, so just like alcohol will control us, what Peter's saying, it's not alcohol that's controlling us, it's rather the, the Holy Spirit. He, he says, come on, uh, it's only nine o'clock in the morning, so it can't be that we're drunk. Now, uh, that may not be the case today. Okay? There, there are a lot of people today who, who like their breakfast beer, right? I, I mean, but, but, but back then, nobody thinks that that's funny. I thought that, that would be funny. <laughs> Some of you are like, it's not funny because, no, anyway. Um, <laughs> But, but the Jews didn't eat, let alone start drinking at 9 o'clock in the morning, all right? Uh, more importantly, though, Peter goes on to say that this is what the prophet Joel had spoken of. Joel had prophesied that a day was coming when God would pour out his spirit, and on that day, everyone who called on the name of the Lord would be saved. So, so look at verse 21, all right? Uh, Peter uh, makes a long quote, gives a long quote from the book of Joel, chapter 2, and at the end of it, he says this, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So, so here's Peter's first point. 
Peter, Peter's point is saying, what, what you're seeing ha- here happen now is a fulfillment of, of the prophecy of Joel when, when he says that there's coming a day when the Holy Spirit's going to be poured out and, and all kinds of amazing things are going to happen. And you need to know that that day has arrived. The day of the Lord is here and everyone who calls on the Lord will be saved. Number two, Peter says, and, and this is key, that the Lord Joel is talking about is Jesus. Are you with me here? You seeing how all this, the, the big story is uh, fitting together here? Joel has said that there's coming a day of the Lord, okay? Whoever calls upon that Lord will be saved. And you need to understand, friends, that that day is right here, right now. And that Lord that Joel is talking about is Jesus. Jesus. Now, let's see then how Peter makes this point. In the rest of his sermon, look at what he says in verses 22 through 24. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Skip on down now to verse 33. In in the preceding verses there, uh, Peter will go on to to quote from Psalm 16, in which David says that one day the Messiah, the the Lord, is going to be raised from the dead. And and so Peter then follows this up and really kind of summarizes everything when when he says this. Actually, verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, And of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Now, now I want you to note Peter's progression here. I I know it's kind of hard to follow maybe uh, a little bit here, but but here's Peter's progression. All right. Peter, in these verses, he just gives a a wonderful um, exposition, so to speak, of the gospel. He lays out the truths of the gospel very powerfully. He says, Jesus, the Jesus that you crucified, he rose again. And then after he rose again, he ascended back to heaven. And when he ascended back to heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit that you are seeing work here and now. This Holy Spirit that's speaking through us is a Holy Spirit that the Jesus that you crucified has sent. And again, Peter's point in all of this is that this proves that Jesus is Lord. Look at how Peter summarizes his message in verse 36. He says this, let all the house of Israel, therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucify. Now in saying that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ, he's not saying that he actually like made him be that. What he's saying is that God has displayed through Jesus' resurrection, ascension, and sending of the Holy Spirit, that he is the Lord himself. He is the Son of God. He is the long-awaited Messiah. Here's all the proof that you need. Now, the most important part of Acts 2 is what happens next. So look at verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart... And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, 
What shall we do? Now, I hope that we can just in some measure this morning put ourselves in the place of the crowd. The crowd that only seven weeks earlier had been crying out, what? Crucify him, crucify him. It's the same people, the same people. And, and let's try to put ourselves into their place for a moment. The, these are a group of people who have been looking for the Messiah for more than a millennium. For more than a thousand years, they have been waiting for God to send the Messiah. To send the one who would rescue them, who would save them, who would establish his rule and reign on earth forever. They have been looking for him. They have placed all of their hopes and dreams upon them. That everything for the Jewish people was wrapped up in their Messiah. And now they are recognizing and they are realizing that when he came, they didn't worship him. They didn't submit to him. They didn't follow him. But rather they did what? They crucified him. Can you, can you just, I, I don't know that we can, but can you imagine what they must be feeling now in this moment? That they had crucified their Messiah. And what does this do to them? Well, it says that they were cut to the heart. That they were overwhelmed by what they had done. That the reality of the fact that they had crucified their Messiah is just utterly crushing them. This, my friends, is as soul-crushing as it gets. I want to ask you this morning, have you ever had... A moment like this? Have you ever found yourself in despair over your sin? And have you, like these people, wondered what you should do about it? Notice that that's what they say, right? Brother, what do we do? What do we do? I want to suggest to you that the question that the crowd asks here is the right one. It's the perfect one. And maybe it's one that we need to ask today in response to our sin. Because here's the reality, friends. Not only did they crucify him, but we crucified him as well. The, 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 the nails that, that held him on the cross, as Martin Luther said, we carry around in our own pockets. That, that he died on the cross because of our sins. We are as guilty as they were. And so we've all got to ask then, in light of the fact that we've crucified our Messiah, what do we do? What do we do? What option is open to us? Because here's the thing. If you crucified your, your Messiah and he uh, has risen again, you can only expect what? You can only expect judgment and wrath. That's part of what they are feeling here. They're like, oh my goodness, what in the world is coming for us now? Well, note how... Peter responds. Notice what he tells them to do. Verse 38 says this. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now, let me point out a couple of things from uh, these verses. Uh, and we'll take them in reverse order, at least the verses in reverse order. First, in verse 39, we need to recognize that the promise of the forgiveness of sins is for everyone. Here, here's a wonderful truth 
Our sins can be forgiven. The Messiah that has been crucified is willing to forgive us. And and notice what Peter says. This promise is, is for you, for the crowd, for your children, and for those who are far off. All those who are far off. Now, friends, do you know who those are who are far off that Peter's talking about there? That, that's, that's you and me, right? That's you and me. We're the far off, not only in time, but also in distance and, and even in ethnicity, okay? We're not, for most part, we're not Jewish, okay? We didn't live then, okay? It's 2,000 years ago, and we're a long way away from the Middle East, from Jerusalem, right? But this promise of the forgiveness of sins is still available today to you and me. Isn't that a wonderful truth? Our sins can be forgiven. Those of us who are far off, and, and, and that was at least, okay, at one point true for all of us. Maybe it's still true for you today. Maybe you're far off. I want to say to you today that this text means that your sins can be forgiven. Now, how are our sins forgiven? Well, Peter says that our sins are forgiven when we repent. Look at it again. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. We receive the promise of the forgiveness of sins. We receive the Holy Spirit through repentance. Our sins are forgiven when we turn from them and turn to faith in Jesus. So so notice what Peter says. He says, repent, okay, for the forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus. This means that our sins are forgiven when we, one, turn from our sin, and then two, turn in faith to Jesus. That we believe that when he died, he died in our place. That's the essence I told you before of the gospel. Jesus in my place. So, repentance and faith, they're they're two sides of the same coin. Repentance is when we turn from our sin, from doing life our own way, from trying to earn our own salvation, and we turn in faith in what Jesus has done in our place. And the moment that we do that, our sins are forgiven. So let me ask you, you, have you done this? Have you repented of your sins? Have you placed your faith in Jesus? If you have, you can rejoice today that your sins are forgiven and that you have the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you're thankful for that, that's reality and truth for you today. Say amen right now, really loud. Amen. Now, if you weren't able, first of all, I would say if you didn't say amen and you were able to, I would ask you why you didn't, okay? But but if you're not able to say amen, because your sins haven't been forgiven, will you see them be forgiven right here and right now? All you have to do is very simply believe that, that Jesus is, is Lord, that he did die in your place, that he did rise again, that he did ascend to heaven, and that he does send the Holy Spirit to all who believe in his name. Now, with all that said, let's talk about baptism for a second, because... The text says, repent and be baptized. Some of you might be thinking, well, you skipped that a a minute ago. Uh, And I did so intentionally because I want to be clear about what Peter is talking about here and what he's not talking about here. All right? It seems from the way that the text reads that Peter is saying that we have to be baptized in order to be saved. And I will say that there are churches and denominations that teach this, but that cannot be what Peter is saying here. 
Peter cannot be saying that you have to be baptized in order to be saved. Now, this is really important, okay, because there's confusion about this. And there are many of you who, who've come from some type of background uh, that teaches in some way that baptism uh, is necessary for salvation. I just want to say to you that that's not what Peter is teaching, and that's not what the New Testament teaches at all. Let me tell you why. I'll give you a number of reasons, all right? First of all... In the New Testament passages where the gospel is clearest, there is no mention at all of baptism. Uh, for example, we, we could talk about 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 5. Let me just walk you through this here, right? But in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 5, Paul gives us really the simplest and clearest explanation of the gospel. He says to the Corinthians, he says, hey, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, the gospel by which you are being saved. And he goes on to say that the gospel is the fact that Jesus Christ died, okay, rose again, and he was seen by a bunch of witnesses. All right, that's the gospel. Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose again. That's the gospel. And if we believe that gospel, that is the gospel that saves us. And and you will note that there is absolutely no mention of baptism in that passage whatsoever. And there are a number of other passages that we could talk about as well. Number two, if baptism is required for salvation, then salvation would come not by faith alone, but by works. In other words, if we have to be baptized in order to be saved, then we have to do something in order to be saved. There's something that we ourselves have to do. And the scripture is clear from beginning to end that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, not by works. A church, a denomination, a pastor, anyone who says that you have to be baptized in order to be saved is saying that you have to work for your salvation. Whether they mean to say that or not, that's what they are saying. So, Peter can't be here saying that you have to be baptized in order to be saved. Number three, when Peter tells his audience to be baptized, he's simply calling them to do so as a sign that they have repented. Really, the best way to read this is to, is to re, uh, should be, uh, repent every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and be baptized. In, in other words, baptism is the first step after you have believed in following Jesus. It's a sign. It's a symbol. It's an illustration that your sins have been forgiven through Jesus and that you are committing your life to him. By the way, I could add actually a fourth reason that we know that uh, Peter is not saying that you have to be baptized in order to be saved is that there are examples of people in the New Testament who are saved and are not baptized, right? Or at least we're not told that they're baptized. The best example of this, of course, would be the thief on the cross, right? All right. And, and just to put it clearly here for you, Jesus didn't get down off of the cross and baptize the thief. He said to him, today I will see you in paradise, all right? Baptism clearly is not required for salvation. Now, but with that in mind, though, I want to point out that there are two errors that we can make when it comes to baptism. The first error is one we've just been talking about, and that is that we overemphasize it by believing that we have to uh, get in the waters in order to be saved, that it is salvific in some way. But as I just said, baptism doesn't save you. It's simply a sign or symbol that you have been saved. 
Now, with that in mind, though, here, what we also want to be clear is that we can also make the error uh, of under-emphasizing baptism by believing that we can take it or leave it. So, so we can say, you know, I don't need to be baptized uh, in order to be saved, and so it's really not all that important. I can really do it or I cannot do it. I just want to say to you today, that is not the way the New Testament puts it either. In fact, we know that's the case because Jesus has commanded us to be baptized. And so it doesn't save us, but it is evidence that we have been saved. In fact, maybe we could say it this way. You don't have to be baptized in order to be saved by Jesus, but you do have to be baptized in order to be obedient to Jesus. All right, so, so here it's really, uh, maybe say, not the way to understand or to look at it, to, to say, I am saved, I am following Jesus, but I am not going to follow him in the first thing that he told me to do after I was saved. Right? In other words, it's the next step in following Jesus. So I just want to say to you today, if you are a believer in Jesus and you have not been baptized after placing your faith in him, you need to be baptized and you need to be baptized post-haste. All right? In other words, you need not to spend any time wondering if you should or you should not. I can confidently tell you that you should be. All right? Just very simply because Jesus has told you you should be. I know there are excuses that we make. We don't want to get up in front of people. All right, I've got this issue, I've got that issue. We can work through all of those issues, all right? You need to be baptized. Talk to one of your pastors or your elders, and we'll figure out a time uh, to be able to do that. By, by the way, why is baptism so important? Why is it so wonderful? Because it is the clearest sign of the most wonderful truth in the world, and that is the fact that our sins have been forgiven and we're on our way to heaven. So that's why we rejoice in it. Now, back to our story. What happens next? Well, look at verse 41. Luke tells us that, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Several things to talk about here. First, of course, is the incredible response to Peter's words. In a matter of moments, the church goes from 120 to 3,000 plus. In one day, at one time, 3,000 people are saved. Now, I've got to ask you, wouldn't it be wonderful to see that here at Harmony someday? Wouldn't it be wonderful even just to see like 10% of that? I'd love 1% of that, all right? I long for that day to happen. From a practical standpoint, however, the most significant thing for us to talk about is what all these people start to do once they're saved. Remember I said at the beginning that Acts 2 is about the birth of the church. And so here at the end of chapter 2, we can see that the church has now officially come into existence. The, the question I want to address then before we finish today is how the church begins to function once it's formed. What do all of these believers do now? And I want you to listen carefully to me here. What we're going to talk about now is critical for us to understand. 
It's critical for us to understand how the church is supposed to function. Uh, Here's why. Uh, Today, when many of us think of church, we tend to think of it as a building or as an event. In other words, you even talked about today probably, uh, let's go to church or we're going to church. And we think that the church is the building that we're currently sitting in, or it's the event that we go and attend. And I just want to say to you, we've got to quit talking like that, and we've got to quit thinking like that. Because the church is not an event, the church is not a building, the church is a group of people. A group of people whose sins have been forgiven, and as a result, they give themselves to certain things. Are you listening to me today? Yeah. Right? The ch- we are the church. Those of us whose sins have been forgiven in the name of Jesus. And the church gives itself to certain things. We see these certain things in verse 42. Verse 42 is a summary of all that follows. Look at it again. They devoted, that's the church, the people, they devote themselves to four things. They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. All right? That's the Word of God. They devote themselves to one another. That's the, the, the fellowship. They devote themselves to the breaking of bread. Now, that doesn't mean eating. It means the Lord's Supper. It means they devote themselves to the remembrance of the gospel, the remembrance of what Jesus did for them on the cross. And they devote themselves to the prayers, and that is the, the gathering when they get together, and they devote themselves specifically to prayer. The early church devotes themselves to these four things. And, and I just want to say to you, that's what the church does. And remember, again, when we think of church, we think of Harmony Bible Church, but we need to more specifically think about the believers in Jesus who gather in a certain time and certain place. That's what the church does. They devote themselves to these things. Now, let's talk about what it means to be devoted. The word devoted means to continue to do something with intense effort. To continue to do something with intense effort. So if you could think about it this way, if you devote yourself to your job, that means that you continue to to work at it with intense effort. If you devote yourself to working out, that means you continue to work out with intense effort. If you're devoted to your marriage, you continue to do things that are going to uh, promote the marriage and are going to grow the marriage. And, And so to devote ourselves to these things means really uh, to be all in. Essentially, devoted means Means to be all in. As a result of these believers working their lives, okay, they go all in as shown by the fact that they continually give themselves to the word, to one another, to remembering the gospel, and to prayer. So I've got to ask you today, because I really believe that this is an area that we need to grow in big time. One of the areas that we lack in a very significant way is we lack commitment. We lack devotion. We lack this idea that we're going to be all in. Now, I I know uh, we have this tendency to separate being all in with Jesus and being all in with the church. But, But the problem with that is, is you can't be all in with Jesus unless you're all in with the church. You can't be. Why? Because to be all in with Jesus means to be all in on the thing that he's all in about, and he's all in about the church. How do you know that Jesus is all in with the church? Because he gave his very life for it. 
He gave his very blood for God purchased. Paul says this, Acts chapter 20, God purchased the church with the blood of his son. The church is, now listen, I know we're a mess. I know we got our issues. I know that there are things that you don't like about Harmony Bible Church. There are things I don't like about Harmony Bible Church, especially the lead pastor, okay? <laughs> we got issues, and we're always going to have issues. By the way, if you're looking for a perfect church, if you find the perfect church, don't ever go there because you'll ruin it the moment you step in the door. <laughs> All right? So, but, but listen, Jesus died for the church. He gave it all for the church. And in response, he calls us to give it all as well, to give it all in the service of him. So I've got to ask you today, are you devoted to these things? Are you all in like the first Christians were? Are you giving yourself wholeheartedly to the things that they did? And let me tell you why this is so important. Verse 47, look at verse 47. It says this, it says, They were praising God and having favor with all the people. That means all the people in their community. And guess what happened? The Lord added to their number day by day, those who are being saved. In other words, the first church's devotion became a powerful witness, a witness that led many people to being saved. And I want you to hear me well here today, friends. This is the reason that we exist. Did you realize that we exist for the people who aren't here yet? That's why this church and every true church exist. We exist for those who aren't here yet. Now, you might be saying, well, I thought we existed for Jesus. And the answer to that is, yes, we do. First and foremost, we exist for Jesus. But you know what existing for Jesus means? It means giving ourselves to the things that he has told us to give ourselves to. Or, as our church mission statement says it, we exist to bring glory to God by being disciples and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And so if we are going to accomplish the mission that Jesus has given us, we have to be devoted to these things because as we are devoted to these things, it gives a powerful witness to the watching world. It results in favor with our community, with our world. And when we have favor with our community and with our world, people will be saved and the church will grow day by day by day. I'm thankful, by the way, that this is happening. It is happening. We're, we're seeing people saved on a regular basis. We had a young lady saved this Wednesday at Tide. We had a lady a couple of weeks ago in one of our service respond uh, to the gospel and come to know Jesus Christ as our Savior. We see this happening. But listen, friends, we have the opportunity to see it happen in a greater and greater way. And it's only going to happen as we all get all in. Are you all in? Now, in closing here today, I want to give you an example. I want to tell you the story quickly of a couple who exemplifies the all-in life more than any other couple that I've ever met. This couple goes by the name of Wendell and Ruth Williams. We've talked about Wendell and Ruth before, uh, but I think it bears talking about them again. One of the reasons that Wendell and Ruth are on my mind and heart is because last Sunday evening at the age of uh, 95, Wendell went home to be with the Lord. Let me tell you a little bit, though, about these two. 
Wendell and Ruth have been members of Harmony Bible Church for about 60 years. Uh, Nearly our church's entire existence, they've been members. The interesting thing, however, about Wendell and Ruth is that for much of this time, they haven't actually attended uh, any of our campuses. And that's because they've either been in Bible college, on the mission field, or they've been unable to, to, to attend because they've uh, been in an assisted living facility in recent years. Here's what you need to know, though, about Wendell and Ruth. Actually, there are lots of things, but the thing you need to know is that wherever they've been, they've been devoted. Back in the early 1960s, Wendell and Ruth were uh, here uh, in Danville uh, and joined a very successful uh, farming business in many other industries. Things were going great. Uh, They were beginning to build uh, the American dream. Wendell, by the way, today's Veterans Day, so we should mention that Wendell was one of those guys who served in World War II, actually fought in Italy. We have, he's a guy that we have a lot to be thankful for, from, just from a physical standpoint. But after coming back from the war, he began to, to farm, and things were going really, really well. When they felt the call of God on their heart, and they took their kids, packed them up, pretty much gave it all away, and said, we're going to Ireland. Before they went to Ireland, they had to spend four years. I think Wendell was in his mid-30s, so he went to school for four years in Canada. And then they shipped off, and they went and served orphans in Ireland for 25 years. That's, by the way, this is Pastor Nathan's um, mom and dad. Uh, That's why Nathan has an Irish accent, by the way, if you ever wonder. All right? Grew up in Ireland. When they retired in the late 80s, they came home, back to Harmony, And over the last, really, 30 years, they've continued to serve in whatever way they could. And God has blessed them and used them in so many people's lives. At Wendell's funeral, there were were kids that they had cared for that had come in from all over the place. And the legacy just goes on and on and on, not only in Ireland, but back here. They were devoted. They were all in. Wendell was all in until the day that he died. In fact, uh, I remember talking to him on numerous occasions, going to the facility they were in, and occasionally when he was able to make it here. And in his his latter years, he would repeatedly say, I don't know why God won't take me home. And the answer to that, and really Nathan's answer to that was, is, Dad, you're too good of a witness. (laughs) Because even in the assisted living facility, everyone who came into their room, they were going to talk to them about Jesus. Every single person. Now, the best example, though, of Wendell and Ruth being all in comes from Ruth herself. And it comes from this Thursday. So on Thursday, Ruth celebrated her 97th birthday. It was also the day where she had the visitation for the husband that she'd been married to for 76 years. Now, here's the thing about Ruth. Ruth can hardly uh, hear. She can't see. And she's very, very frail. And yet, um, as I, I stopped to talk uh, with her at the visitation, just have a few minutes, of course, because other people want to do so as well, uh, her daughter was next to her, and, and her daughter said, you know, uh, every person that has come through, mom has asked them two questions. The first question is, is, do you have a good church to go to? And if they said no, she said, well, you should go to Harmony Bible Church. <laughs> More importantly... Much more importantly, she asked them this, do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Now, friends, come on, okay? This lady has every reason in the world to only be worried about herself, 
to only be consumed with what she's got going on. And yet there's only one thing that she cares about. Do people know Jesus? That's what it means to, to be all in. And I just want to say that uh, Wendell and Ruth were like that their entire lives. Ruth continues to be like that. By the way, Wendell right now is all about Jesus too, all right? He's worshiping like he never has been before. But I just want to say this, friends. There is a whole generation of people who are passing away who know what it means to be devoted, who know what it means to be all in. And I have to wonder if in 40 or 50 years we're going to be able to say the same thing. Are we going to be able to say the same thing about you? Are you all in? In light of what Jesus has done for you, are you all in for him? And if you're not, will you go all in today? Will you say, I'm I'm putting all the chips in. I'm, I'm going all in. I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Let's pray.